0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are talking about a topic that was requested on Twitter by listener Carsa. Uh, And it is contraband camps. And we have spoken before about the term contraband being used to refer to escaped or union-freed slaves during the U.S. Civil War. But we really haven't touched on, with any detail, uh, the contraband camps where many of these people were held both during the war and through Reconstruction. And as is often the case with history, the story of emancipation is just way more complicated than the broad strokes that are often used to describe it. It's definitely not as though the Emancipation Proclamation happened and voila, everyone is free and everything is great. In fact, this transition was incredibly difficult and newly freed people often really struggled and some very bad things happened to them. And we're going to talk about some of the legal issues surrounding slaves escaping to freedom. And then we're going to get into the incident that really catalyzed sort of accidentally the development of contraband camps. And then we'll talk about the challenges that these camps posed, both for those living in them and for the Union Army.
1: Yeah, I'm both glad and sad that we're doing this episode because it's such a difficult topic, but also the idea of contraband has come up so many times in so many past episodes that I'm really glad that we will have this one to refer folks to if they want to learn more about that. Yeah. So we've talked about the Fugitive Slave Acts before, but for the sake of context, we're going to do kind of a broad stroke overview of them here. In the late 1700s, there was already a significant conflict brewing between the states that were pushing for abolition and the slave states. There were concerns that this ongoing disagreement was going to cause really big problems and fracturing for the fledgling nation. So to try to find a compromise, Congress passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793.
0: And this act built on the Fugitive Slave Clause that already existed in the U.S. Constitution. And that clause read, quote, No person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered upon claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due.
1: So to sum that up, if you escape to a free state, that doesn't mean that you're free. So the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 established much more specific ways for that clause to be enacted. It made provisions for slave owners and those taking or those acting on their behalves to search for escaped slaves in free states. They had to provide proof of ownership if they captured an escaped slave. But this requirement was actually pretty lax. It could be as simple as a signed affidavit swearing that, yes, the captor owned the person they were holding. This law also specified a penalty of $500 to anyone who helped or hid an escaped slave.
0: In response, several states enacted personal liberty laws to circumvent the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 and temper its abuse. These laws were designed to protect free men who might be captured and enslaved through exploitation of those kind of slack proof requirements and also to provide escaped slaves with a right to a jury trial. But these laws were eventually overturned in 1842 when the Supreme Court ruled in Prague versus Pennsylvania that state laws intended to undermine the Slave Act could not trump federal law. Even so, the Fugitive Slave Act of
1: 1793 wasn't enforced in a lot of areas, and slave states were really angry at the number of people who were able, who were able to escape into free states. But we do need to make a major note here. We've mentioned this before, but it really bears repeating that it's not as though thousands and thousands of people were escaping from the slave states. Escaping was incredibly difficult. And while you sometimes see numbers in the thousands, you have to consider that when you look at it in proportion, the number of people who were escaping for bondage, from bondage was a tiny, tiny fraction of the actual total number of enslaved people.
0: Due to the growing discontent in slave states because of slaves running to free states, In 1850, Congress once again passed legislation in an effort to smooth things over and prevent Southern secession. This included a revision to the Fugitive Slave Act. The 1850 update to this act made penalties much more serious for anyone aiding or hiding escaped slaves. Instead of that $500 fine, it was $1,000, and there was also a six-month jail sentence. Jury trials for slaves were also eliminated with this law, and federal commissioners were given the power to oversee individual cases.
1: On May 23rd of 1861, so just about six weeks after the U.S. Civil War officially started on April 12th, uh, three escaped slaves managed to cross Virginia's James River and make it to Fort Monroe. This was a military post that was occupied by the Union.
0: Those three men, who were named Frank Baker, Shepard Malloy, and James Townsend, had been forced into Confederate service by their owner, working for the 115th Virginia Militia. Their primary job was building an artillery emplacement across from Fort Monroe at Sewell's Point. But when word reached them that their owner, Charles Mallory, intended to next send them to North Carolina, a move that would take them farther away from their homes the three men decided that they were going to risk an escape by water in the dark of night and face the unknown reception they would get with the Union forces.
1: When the men were brought before Major General Benjamin Franklin Butler, who was not an especially kind or delightful person, he questioned them on a number of points, ranging from the identity of their master to the reason why they had fled to the work that they had been doing for the Confederates.
0: After the interview, Butler considered the situation. And keep in mind that these men who had run and and were looking for help were kind of sent away from this interview with no indication as to what was going to happen to them next. But as Butler ruminated, uh, he considered the fact that by law, slaves were supposed to be returned. But if he handed these men back over to the enemy side, they would be used to continue building the artillery emplacement that was targeting his own fort. And they had also given him some military intelligence in the course of their interview.
1: So while Butler was not himself an abolitionist, he wasn't particularly keen on sending Baker, Shepard, and Mallory back to the rebels. In the meantime, an officer from the rebel camp, Major John Baytop Carey, had arrived at the fort
0: to collect these three escaped men. And in this critical moment, uh, General Butler tapped into his knowledge of law. He had been a practicing attorney uh, for years before he found himself at Fort Monroe. Virginia had seceded less than a day before the three fugitives were brought before him. So when he met with Major Carey, he stated quite clearly that he was not going to turn over the three men. And he told the major, quote, I am under no constitutional obligations to a foreign country, which Virginia now claims to be. I know we already established that he's
1: not a particularly kind or delightful person, but when I was reading this outline for the first time, I got to that point and I was kind of like,
0: Yeah. Well, and he there is a there's more back and forth between the two of them that you'll hear, and it, it is sort of a like, but you said we couldn't be a foreign country, the union isn't accepting our secession, and he's like, But you're saying you're seceding. And he does sort of really turn on his law. Yeah. Um I got lawyered. Yeah. <laughs>
1: So he was also operating under the military law that a commander could seize property from his enemy if that property was used with hostile intent. And because the men had been building an artillery emplacement and were considered property by the Confederacy, he felt like he had full legal grounds to keep them.
0: Yes. Yeah, so while he was maybe not an abolitionist, he was really, really happy to kind of uh turn these Confederates own words against them and kind of, you know, stick them in the ribs with his law knowledge. Uh, and while Butler did know that this decision was going to carry some import in it, that it was going to add a layer of complexity to the war. What he might not have realized was just exactly what he was catalyzing and how big it was going to become. Two days later, eight more escaped slaves arrived at Fort Monroe And on the third day, there were 47 more. And that was only the beginning. As word spread, more slaves made their way to the fort in the hopes of sanctuary. And their ranks became more varied. At first, it was just young men, but soon it included women, children, and the elderly. And Fort Monroe soon earned the nickname Freedom Fort. That decision on the part of General
1: Butler really set up a situation that was kind of a conundrum for the government. And we will talk about that after a pause for a brief word from one of our wonderful sponsors. So to get back to our story, as for President Lincoln, he was really not sure what to do about all these fugitive slaves. He left the decision of how to handle this growing number of refugees up to General Butler, with the reminder that the military commander was at Fort Monroe to fight the war, not to emancipate people. Some bureaucratic suggestions were made by Cabinet Secretary Montgomery Blair, including keeping the strong men to help at the fort and letting the rest go. And one newspaper, this case drew media attention almost from the moment that it began suggested keeping the slaves until the end of the war and then selling them back to their former owners at a rate that would reimburse the Union for their care.
0: Yeah, everybody kind of had an opinion on what to do. Uh, but and some of them were abhorrent. Some of them were horrifying. Uh, by early June, though, the numbers of escaped slaves at Fort Monroe numbered more than 500. And the word contrabands was being used almost universally in the press and in the military at the time to refer to them. And as we've talked about, we've, we've mentioned that word many times as a reference to escaped slaves on the podcast, but there was a New York Times Magazine article from 2011 that I came across written by Adam Goodhart and it beautifully explains why this word caught on so quickly. And he says, quote, were these blacks people or property, free or slave? Such questions were as yet unanswerable, for answering them would have raised a host of other questions that few white Americans were ready to address. Contrabands let the speaker or writer off the hook by letting the escapees be all of those things at once.
1: It wasn't long before people were escaping and running to other union positions as well. And while some union officers followed Butler's lead, they didn't all do that. Particularly in the border states, enslaved people were often returned to their masters by Union forces. But this didn't stop people from trying to gain refuge at Union encampments.
0: Finally, in an effort to create some sort of consistency to how these things were being handled, the Union issued the First Confiscation Act on August 6th of 1861. And this legislation declared that the Union had the right to seize slaves. That was as part of a broader statement that Confederate property of any kind could be taken by Union troops. It also stated that slaveholders had no rights to ownership. But the wording of this act was really problematic in that it did not make clear whether or not the slaves themselves were then going to be free.
1: The day after the passing of the First Confiscation Act, which was August 7th, Confederate troops burned the town of Hampton, Virginia, which sat across the water from Fort Monroe after the white citizens of the town evacuated. The Confederates didn't want Union troops to seize Hampton for use as a winter quarters, for one thing. But they were also really uneasy at the growing numbers of of enslaved people who were making their way to the area in search for freedom.
0: And so they sort of created a unique uh, opportunity because in the abandoned areas adjacent to this burned city, the community of what became known as the Grand Contraband Camp formed. And this started as a community that was bound by the existing roads of the area, but as it expanded and refined its organizational structure, new streets were established, and all of those were named for Union generals.
1: But the first Confiscation Act was only one of several pieces of legislation created to organize a more unified plan for handling escaped slaves. The Act Prohibiting the Return of Slaves was passed in March 1862, and with this act, Congress prevented the military from sending fugitive slaves back into slavery. In July 1862, Congress passed the Second Confiscation Act, and this act further clarified the Union position that any slaves who sought refuge in Union areas would be considered captives of war and would be freed. This is something of a prelude to the Emancipation Proclamation. While it clearly stated that slaves would be freed, it only applied to people escaping who made their way to union-occupied areas.
0: And through all of this congressional maneuvering, uh enslaved people continued to seek asylum with Union forces and eventually makeshift camps were set up for them. Uh, in addition to it wasn't just the grand contraband camp. They were sort of throwing together camps in a lot of different places. Uh, and they all came to be known as contraband camps. And as news of each of these laws spread, the numbers in those camps swelled.
1: And they swelled again with the announcement of the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation on September 22nd, 1862, which stated that, quote, on the first day of January, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States shall be then, thenceforward and forever free.
0: But it wasn't as though any of the people that had already gone to union positions for help could then be told, go away until January 1st. This situation continued to grow, and it needed organization and order. Along the Mississippi Valley, Ulysses S. Grant named a superintendent of contrabands, and that was John Eaton, who was the chaplain of the 27th Ohio Infantry.
1: Initially, Eaton organized the refugees into groups and gave those who were capable of working work to do the union paid 12 and a half cents for every picked pound of cotton. Their clothing and board was deducted out of these earnings. Other men were tapped for leadership positions and organizing contraband camps throughout additional regions. For the most part, their work followed a similar model.
0: In addition to picking cotton, jobs such as downing trees or clearing land and construction projects were also assigned to the refugees capable of and willing to do labor. In a camp in Corinth, Mississippi, freedmen were tasked with the work that transitioned the camp from a makeshift tent setup to an actual small town with something of an infrastructure. There were eventually cabins, streets, a school, a hospital, a church, and a commissary, and it was all arranged into neighborhood wards. And at its most populated, the Corinth camp was home to 6,000 people.
1: As land was confiscated by the Union in areas around camps, the task of farming that land also fell to the camp residents. This enterprise was quite successful, eventually turning regular profits, and the proceeds of that went to the government.
0: But in the case of the Corinth camp, as successful as it was, and it, in the research that I was doing, it often gets referenced as like this example of like a perfect execution of how to do this. Uh, but it was still never considered a permanent solution. In the 1863-1864 winter, all of the camp's residents were moved to Memphis. The abandoned village was then just left behind for Confederate forces to take over.
1: So while we've been talking about Fort Monroe and Corinth, there were also camps dotted throughout the occupied South. In North Carolina, for example, there were more than 17,000 people living in contraband camps by 1864.
0: And because overcrowding became a very real problem in a lot of camps, the military relocated some of these people to government farms. And when black regiments were formed within the Union Army in the second half of the Civil War, they recruited from contraband camps. And in some cases, men enlisted with the understanding that in reciprocation, the Union Army was going to take care of their families. Though those agreements were not always honored.
1: And this brings us to another important element of contraband camps, which is the incredibly poor treatment that many of the people who lived there actually wound up receiving. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But first, we will take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. We've spoken pretty often on our show about how racism and uh, contradictions to how it's often depicted is not just a Southern problem. And this was certainly the case in regard to these contraband camps. Union soldiers were often opposed to having camps filled with escaped slaves adjacent to their own camps, even as many of the people living there were working and contributing to the war effort.
0: And this, of course, was not an issue exclusive to the military either. When black refugees made their way out of Confederate territory into places such as Washington, D.C., they were not necessarily greeted with open arms. White Northerners could be very vocal about their disdain for the refugees. So in some cases, the military actually intervened to move these people into contraband camps. That meant that people who had fought so hard to get to freedom found themselves relocated to camps, sometimes back in Union-occupied areas of the very states that they had fled, and often in very poor conditions.
1: For one thing, many of the services that were set up in camps were predicated on the idea that the people living there were lazy and shiftless and even untrustworthy. A lot of the education was designed to teach escaped slaves how to be more like white people. And it addressed people as though they were simpletons. Additionally, the wages that were being paid for the work that the refugees was doing
0: was incredibly low. But there was a much more pressing issue at many of the camps. Uh, As numbers grew and the Union continued to shuffle people around, It was hard for the basic necessities of shelter, food, clothing, and medical care to be met for many of the camp residents. In some camps, people literally starved to death or became ill and died simply because they couldn't get treatment.
1: We know that the military suffered incredible losses due to illness such as malaria and smallpox during this time as well. So it makes sense that the same illnesses were hitting the camps that were growing right alongside the Union Army. Often, contraband camp residents who pleaded with military officials for help were seen as nuisances, even though they were simply trying to secure basic survival needs for themselves and their families.
0: The Emancipation Proclamation was issued on January 1st of 1863, freeing all slaves in the rebelling states. And while this was an important moment, as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it's not as though suddenly everything was super great for former slaves. Aside from the fact that the war was still going on, health issues remained a significant and pressing problem.
1: Yeah, and then a lot of places that was not honored either. So between 1863 and 1866, 60,000 freed slaves died of smallpox. An estimated total of 1 million of the 4 million freed slaves became sick, and many of them died from their illnesses.
0: And that data was framed for a really long time as being the result of an inherent lack of hygiene among the newly freed. Unfortunately, that false information was allowed to propagate for a great length of time due to some incredibly bigoted attitudes, including some people who felt that this high mortality rate somehow proved that black people couldn't survive outside the construct of slavery. And things were so bad that there was a popular and super racist theory that the black race in the U.S. was going to go extinct because it simply couldn't handle freedom. But, in fact, the lack of resources and a lack of treatment options led to
1: outright neglect when it came to dealing with the illnesses that became so common amongst freed people. Many of them were still in contraband camps and their environments were overcrowded. The available options for care, available to white people dealing with the same illnesses, were mostly closed off to black people. And the military had really become stretched beyond its limits.
0: Yeah, we spoke earlier of there being some infrastructure in the lives of escaped slaves, but I'm going to backtrack on that a little bit, sort of. There was, to some degree, a sort of community infrastructure to some of these camps in terms of well-organized neighborhoods and social systems.
1: But there was not at all an infrastructure that enabled the government to provide for the scores of sick and injured people in the military, let alone support the large numbers of newly freed people who were going through this massive sea change and needed assistance to get through that transition. Unfortunately, emancipation created a situation that the United States government was just not prepared to deal with.
0: There were serious challenges to the freedmen who found themselves suddenly outside the structure of their slavery-bound lives. The shortages of food, clothing, and shelter for newly emancipated people continued to be a serious problem and a grave one. Survival was a struggle in the best of circumstances.
1: Even after emancipation, there were still people being moved into contraband camps. There just weren't enough options or places for emancipated slaves to go. But there were also freedmen who were diligent in avoiding the camps as their reputations for their high mortality rates really started
0: to spread. So as a sort of stopgap, an act of Congress created the U.S. Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, more commonly known as the Freedmen's Bureau, and they created it on March 3rd of 1865. That was uh, a little less than two months after the 13th Amendment to the Constitution formally abolished slavery and two months before General Lee officially surrendered and ended the war.
1: The Bureau was part of the War Department, and it was intended to last until the war ended plus one additional year to provide the support and services to freed slaves that it had been so lacking up until that point. But this was really not a magic fix. The country had never had to create a welfare program before and had never had to provide for a large number of refugees. So there was a bit of guesswork going on in all of this.
0: And of course, there were plenty of people completely opposed to the Freedmen's Bureau. Even after the war ended, many southern states were against it. And President Andrew Johnson, who you will recall, uh, took office after Lincoln was shot, uh, vetoed an extension of the Bureau's life and powers in 1866. Congress overrode that veto, but internal debate still raged over how to structure aid and assistance provided by the organization.
1: The Freedmen's Bureau did do a lot of good work. It built hospitals and provided medical aid. It helped former slaves with legal issues, including establishing marriages in the legal record, which, as we've mentioned in past episodes, didn't really exist before. It helped family members find each other. You can actually find digitized copies of Freedmen's Bureau records of people trying to find their family members who had been held elsewhere in bondage. And it advocated for black workers in labor disputes and set up educational institutions."
0: But as much as it was trying to do all these things as well as it could, it was woefully underfunded and there was never enough staff to meet its goals. The most agents, as they were called, which were basically sort of akin to social workers, uh, that the Freedmen's Bureau ever had at one time was 900. And that was 900 people to assist the approximately 4 million people who had been freed. It takes very little math knowledge to know that that is an overwhelming disparity of numbers. And those agents that were doing that work were working during reconstruction when there was still a lot of bitterness and roadblocking of their efforts. The Bureau was finally shut down in 1872.
1: After the war ended, many of the contraband camps that weren't dismantled slowly transitioned into basically a black neighborhood, even as white residents moved into the
0: area. The Grand Contraband Camp in Hampton, Virginia, that we talked about earlier, was one of those. Uh, And it turned out that the person who had owned the land where the camp began, Jefferson Bonaparte Sinclair, went bankrupt. And this opened the door for some of the people who had settled there in the camp to purchase their homes after the court divided the land into parcels. These are some of the first instances of freed people buying property on record.
1: And the Hampton Camp continues to be a place of interest Beginning in 2014, an archaeological investigation of the site of the Grand Contraband Camp started. The site had been built over, but uh, the apartment building that had been standing on the main site was demolished, and the James River Institute of Archaeology started excavating the area to try to learn more about the lives of the people who had lived in the camp.
0: Yeah, there's an excellent article in Archaeology Magazine online where they talk about some of their early findings, and that will be in our show notes. But the legacy of health discrimination, which has, has its roots during this tumultuous and pivotal time in U.S. history, continues to be discussed by historians and social workers alike. Uh, if you're interested in exploring that issue in far more depth, I highly recommend the book Sick from Freedom by Jim Downs. It is not an easy read. There are a lot of very difficult stories to discover in that book but it's really eye opening it's an incredible exploration of the suffering that went on in many contraband camps and it's important for people to know this stuff was happening so I highly recommend it there is also again it will be in our show notes an excellent lecture that he gave at the US National Archives a couple years ago uh, where he talks about both some of these issues it's only an hour long lecture so he doesn't go into all of the details but he talks not only about some of these issues but the way that information has been bent and reframed and perceived by various special interest groups along the way, and some people using this this sort of information for their own ends that is gross and racist uh as well as people not always wanting to acknowledge how bad some of this went because it makes it seem like emancipation was a bad thing, which it obviously was not, but it was a challenging thing, so uh that's the scoop on contraband camps. Thank you so much, Carsa, for suggesting it. It had kind of been lurking for a while on my list. And I think on Tracy's list as well. Uh, And it just seemed like time to tackle it finally. So do you also also have some listener mail? I do. And it's not depressing at all which is not to say that depressing is bad that's important stuff but I have two pieces of uh, postcard mail I'm going to keep it short since that episode ran a little bit long uh, the first one is from our listener Hayden and Hayden went to New York City on a birthday trip and went to the Tenement Museum one of the things that's mentioned is finally a historic home that tells the tale of the working class and not just the wealthy elite uh, and so thank you so much Hayden for thinking of us and sending us that the Tenement Museum you know we love it it is awesome the people that work there are incredible. Uh, and the second one is from our listener, Lindsay. And she uh, went to the South Street Seaport Museum uh, and got us a trade card by the Singer Sewing Machine Company, which is kind of this wonderful combination <laughs> postcard where it shows the Great Suspension bit Bridge uh, connecting New York and Brooklyn. But then it also has, have you a Singer Sewing Machine on it. It's a kind of weird uh double bill for a postcard, but I love it. So thank you very, very much. Uh if you would like to write to us, you can do so at history podcast at house dot com. You can reach out to us at Facebook.com slash mist history, on Twitter at Mistin History, at Pinterest.com slash Mistinhistory, at mistinhistory dot tumblr dot com and on Instagram at MistInHistory. If you would like to research a little bit more about what we talked about today or almost anything else, you can go to our parent site, housedefworks dot com type in something in the search bar and come up with just an array of amazing answers anytime you do a search. You can also visit us at MissedInHistory.com where you'll see the back catalog of every episode of the podcast that has ever happened including hosts way, way, way before Tracy and I were on the show and we have show notes for any of the episodes since the Tracy and Holly era of Stuffy You Missed in History class as well as occasional other goodies. So please come and visit us online at HowStuffWorks.com and MissedInHistory.com